0: good evening good evening. my name is Paul, and i'm a full blown alcoholic <laughs> thank you, Patty. That was a delightful introduction, a little bit short but
1: uh
0: <laughs> It's okay for her to be impressed. It's a good thing I'm not that impressed if I got it I am delighted to be here uh I notice everybody starts out giving their sobriety date in the rather formal way, and that's the custom here, but it's not the custom where I come from, and uh, so I don't have to do that. Uh, <laughs> but I will share with you one historical fact, and that is that July the 31st, last July 31st, or a week ago yesterday, was my 30th AA birthday. You are, you are nowhere n- nowhere near as impressed as I am I, uh, I used to I lived with me 35, 40, 50 years and I know more than you know and uh, I know uh, I'm very impressed that 30 years is uh, 30 years is the longest I have ever gone
1: without
0: a drink. Thirty years is a long time between drinks for me. You know, uh, one of the amazing things about it is that I'm not even thirsty. Uh, (laughs) What I found out, what you've taught me is that uh, drinking makes me thirsty. Uh, Nothing makes me want to drink like having a drink. Uh, <laughs> uh, alcoholism is a self perpetuating thirst. Uh and I uh so I, I'm glad to be here and glad to be sober and this is uh I've had a wonderful week of celebrating and uh this, every, everybody everybody should at least have one week like I have had at one point in their life and uh and this is the climax of it, and it's uh, just delightful to be here and be at a Rule 62 uh conference. I can't think of a better reason to have a conference than this Rule 62, and I... Love your enthusiasm. This I, I this is gonna be a wonderful weekend. I love enthusiasm. I'm very enthusiastic about enthusiasm. I, I, I even like the word enthusiasm. As far as I know, N means within and Theos means God. It refers to the God within. And my God is happy when He knows I'm enthusiastic about the life that he has given me today. And I love being around enthusiastic people. I uh In fact, even if somebody's doing something wrong, if they're doing it with enthusiasm, by (laughs) God! So I love enthusiasm, and uh, and I love Rule sixty-two. I love Rule sixty-two. So Rule sixty-two. I early in sobriety, early in sobriety, I I had a personalized license plate on. I had a Cadillac, big Cadillac, big fins. Remember fins? uh, we used to pile six, eight, nine people in and go to meetings all over the place and, uh, and had personalized license plate and the license plate on the Cadillac was 12N12, 12 12AN12. 12, 12 and also had another, a little car, an, an Opel GT. <laughs> Remember an Opel GT? It thought it was a uh, Corvette. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It,
0: it suffered, it suffered from delusions of grandeur. But it,
1: <laughs>
0: bright yellow for, uh, ru, uh, Opal GT. Bright yellow. License, rule, the, the license plate, personalized license plate, rule 62. And it was just so, uh, it, it being a part of 12 and 12 and then the little car that thought it was a big car it was rule 62. And Max drove, of course she drove the Cadillac. Uh, and, and, and she worked at my office uh, 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 Max had uh, worked uh, my way through medical school and uh, so I thought the least I could do is let her work in my office uh, for 25 years uh, at no, no salary uh, <laughs> But I, you know, I, I had to do something. Anyway, I, <laughs> uh, I gave her the Cadillac and she, we had a, a, a dentist in our medical building who was a car buff and he loved everything about cars. And, uh, one day Max pulled into the parking lot and he saw her he says, uh, he said, oh, that license plate, that 12 and 12, what, what, what's the meaning of that 12 and 12? Well, we hadn't been around a long, very long time, and Max knew about anonymity, and she knew that uh, practice depended on referrals from other doctors and so on, and she just didn't know <laughs> what to say, and so she says, oh, it's in the book, and she went in the office and shut the door.
1: <laughs>
0: well, sometime later, I drove up in my little Opal GT, and he saw me, and he came running over, and he says, oh, hey, that Rule 62, what does that Rule 62 mean? And I remembered Max's council, conference with him, and, and I started to laugh. And he says, oh, God, don't tell me it's in the book.
1: You know? <laughs> <laughs> And I said, no,
0: no, no. And I said, it's about alcoholics anonymous. I told him about alcoholics anonymous, and I told him about the steps and the traditions and rule sixty-two. And he was, he was really sorry he had asked. Well, and then uh, later on, we moved to uh, state of Washington. I had work up there, and uh, and uh, up there they don't like you to keep your California license. And so I turned my Rule 62 in and got a Washington license. Max was too stubborn. She kept her California license. Uh, but when we came back to California, then I had to get a license, a California license. And I knew everybody had wanted Rule 62. And so I knew it wouldn't be available. So I just applied for a regular license. And went through the things. And then they were supposed to send it to me. And instead of sending me the license, they sent me a letter. And they said, would you like Rule 62 back again? And I said, yeah, so I've got it again. So now our personalized license plates are 12 and 12 and Rule 62. Well, that just about beats that story to death. Um, (laughs) Is it quitting time yet? Uh,
1: Um...
0: A night flight, uh, ride down here, uh, no, a plane ride down. Uh, when you get uh, fly someplace, first thing people say to you, how was your trip? How was your trip? And on their plane, they had two uh, flight attendants, and, uh, a man and a woman. And uh, they were going down the aisle with their cart and finding out what would you like to drink. Giving out the peanuts and the beverage. And they came to the, past me and to the guy behind me. And she handed the gal, handed him his peanuts and said, what would you like to drink, sir? And he says, I'd like white wine. So she looked through her cart. Then CNA, and she turned to the male attendant and asked him, she says, do we have any white wine? And he said, no, we don't have any white wine, but we got plenty of red wine. So she turned to the man behind me. And she said, sir, we don't have any white wine, but we have red wine. Would you like red wine? He had to think about it.
1: <laughs>
0: you
1: know.
0: Until until he stopped to think about it, it never occurred to me what a, a serious social blunder that would be <laughs> <laughs> to drink the wrong color wine with airline peanuts. You know,
1: <laughs>
0: you know things like that are important, by God. <laughs> you gotta do it right. That brings up a, 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 a situation. I, I have a, a a request to make of somebody. Um, I have been having trouble finding somebody to check this out for me. But you know, on, on all on all the airlines, the, each airline has its own magazine that they give out. They like for you to take it with you. American Airlines, it's America Way, I think it is. And I was reading through this, and it, uh, there's one department where the girl writes about the best buys. And he'll suggest the best play, and the best movie, and the best audio, and the best video, and the best this, and the best that. And under the best drinks, she was talking about the best wines. And what she said was. She said. The 1992 Napa Valley Chardonnays. Have a crisp. Pear apple flavor. With a touch of clove. At the end.
1: <laughs>
0: now. What I've been looking for. Is somebody. Somebody who is planning a slip.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Remember now, it's the 1992 Napa Valley Chardonnays. I'm really not all that concerned about the crisp pear apple flavor. But I'm intrigued to find out whether it leaves you with a touch of clove at the end.
1: <laughs>
0: Thunderbird never left me. With a touch of clove. <laughs> and, and, and Thunderbird was my favorite white wine. And, uh, <laughs> Ruby Rose was the red one. <laughs> but if somebody would check that out, I'd really be happy. If you're out there anyway, I didn't even suggest you go out but If you're out there, I don't. It's not worth me going out for. But uh, uh, so anyhow, well, let's see. I guess my talk's about over, isn't it? Uh, I uh, I used to drink.
1: Uh, <laughs>
0: Sometimes I drank too much. Uh, in fact, sometimes I got in trouble from drinking. I never. I, I even did things to try to quit drinking, and lots and lots of things to quit drinking. Uh, and I, I could quit, but I just couldn't stay quit. Uh, in fact, I remember the other day. I forget what somebody was talking about, but they were going over the things we have tried to quit drinking in the chapter three, and. uh I remember the time when I was reading a medical journal and it was saying that a good new treatment for psychoneurosis was inhalations of carbon dioxide gas. (laughs) (laughs) Ha 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 yourself. It was in a scientific journal. (laughs) They wouldn't write it out if it weren't true. Uh, And I... uh, and I thought, well, I'm, I, I, it didn't occur to me I was an alcoholic. I thought, well, I was certainly neurotic. And I was always telling our family what a bunch of neurotics we were. And I, I endeared myself to them a great deal by telling them things like that. Uh, and I thought, and carbon dioxide, what it is, is carbon dioxide is the thing that makes you breathe deeper and harder. Carbon dioxide is why you can't hold your breath longer than you can. It's not long, it's not lack of oxygen. It's the body accumulates carbon dioxide and forces you to breathe. And that's why if you're hyperventilating and breathing too much, you're blowing off the carbon dioxide and you need to accu- You feel like you need more oxygen, but you need more carbon dioxide. That's why you breathe in a plastic bag. I'm going to send you all a bill for this consultation. <laughs> <of your university. laughs> But so, uh, and, and if you breathe car- uh, with carbon dioxide, it makes you breathe faster and, faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and faster, and the bells ring and the whistles go and you know, all the things happen in your head and finally your brain explodes and you pass out. And I thought, well, that sounds like that ought to cure something. And, uh, <laughs> but I couldn't go to any doctor and say I wanted the carbon dioxide inhalations and. Why would I need a doctor? I'm the best doctor I know. And I, so I, uh, I called up the gas company—not uh, not your gas company, the ones that sell the gas in big tanks of stuff—and they drove up to the, my house with a big truck and uh, got a big dolly and got this maybe oh thing about so tall, or maybe weighed 250 pounds on a dolly and wheeled it up to the front door and. So where do you want it? And I said, well, in the master bedroom. Where would you expect? uh, He runs it in with a a hose on it and a mask. And so I thought, well, I know how to do all this. The only thing I can't do is once I pass out, I need somebody to take the mask off because I don't know what happens if you keep breathing it after you pass out. Um, And... So I told Max, I said, you uh, she's in there watching TV, and uh, I said, I'm going to give myself this gas treatment, and after I breathe enough, I'm going to pass out. And will you come in and take the mask off and turn the gas off? And she said, all right, you know. And, Uh, so I go in and I lay on the bed and I put this thing on my face and I breathe this gas and it gets faster, and faster and faster and faster and faster and the lights flare and the bells ring and all of a sudden boom I pass out and I suppose at the com- next commercial <laughs> she came in <laughs> <And> she... <laughs> yeah. I think it should be added to the list because it's one more thing that didn't work you know but I was willing to go to anything.
1: <laughs>
0: I even took anabuse. I didn't, and I didn't do it casually. I didn't just take it and and they were hit and miss. Take it like some people do and stop taking it. I took it faithfully every day, and I looked up how you take it, and how much you take, and what the antidote is, and how often you take it, and the side effects, and all that stuff. And I was very sincere about it. Uh, the biggest problem with it was that I had to get some. And I couldn't go to a drugstore and buy some, for God's sake. Uh, what do you want that for? You know? <laughs> so I had to write out a prescription for it. I wrote it out for a fake prescription for Peter Johnson.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and, uh, and I had Max go to two towns over to a thrifty drugstore <laughs> and fill the prescription for an abuse for Peter Johnson. And uh, every day I very con- conscientiously Every morning, I very conscientiously took the Antibus. Anab- an- and every evening, I very conscientiously took the Antidote and drank. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh. And,
1: uh,
0: and I since have found out that Peter Johnson was the captain of the Queen Mary on her last trip. Along the and if any of you know him tell him that I'm publicly making amends for ruining, (laughs) for ruining his reputation by writing out a prescription for antibiotics in his name. Anyway, that didn't work either. And, uh, nothing worked. And, uh, I was losing weight and, uh, having daily headaches and sense of impending insanity and, uh, going crazy and, uh, I thought, my God, I'm really sick and I, I need a good medical checkup. I need to see a good diagnostician. And as I say, I happened to be the best diagnostician <laughs> I knew. And I uh, did some lab work on me and I did a bit of a physical examination and I sat down and had a consultation with me. Ran <laughs> over the, uh, the weight loss and the insanity and the headaches and the pain and the convulsions. I forgot that i would had acute pancreatitis. Uh, but and, and with the convulsions, and, and I was under the treatment, I was under the care of the most prominent neurologist, convulsive disorder specialist, the most prominent neurologist in Orange County, California, who, who was giving me Dilantin and Phenobarbital for epilepsy, and uh, he didn't think to ask me if I drank, and I didn't think to tell him, and, uh, <laughs> but I would sit down, and had a consultation with me, and it was, uh, it was suddenly obvious, it was suddenly obvious, so I had a brain tumor, and,
1: <laughs> no,
0: nothing, nothing funny about a brain tumor, uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I had
0: a brain tumor, and you and I would die, and you'd all be sorry by God
1: <laughs> and
0: uh And the neurologist couldn't find out why I was having convulsions, and he ended up sending me back to the Mayo clinic uh that's where he'd specialized he's trained, and uh he sent me back to the neurosurgeon to see get my brain tumor taken care of and uh I spent nine days back there. Going through the mail clinic. The, the most, uh, outstanding thing about that trip was not the nine days, it was the fact that it was the Christmas season. If you have to go to the mail clinic, try not to go around Christmas season. If you end up in a nut ward by mistake like I did, uh, <laughs> They make, you, they make you ice Christmas cookies. <laughs> I, I remember that woman in white came to my cell and took me down the, to the Christmas cookie icing party. <laughs> I don't know how many cookies... And shoot, steer my hand in the icing and we smashed it onto a cookie. <laughs> I don't know how many cookies we crumble... Before I told her what she could do with her goddamn cooking, <laughs> and I went back to my cell.
1: <laughs>
0: I uh, I don't like to... the the reason of that is that when I was a kid in Ohio, incidentally, I was, we were, I was born in Canton, Ohio, and uh, grew up in and Max and I grew up in Alliance, Ohio. And uh, went to medical school in Columbus, Ohio. Came to California from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, well, I guess that's enough of that Ohio story. Uh, <laughs> they, anyway, uh what was I talking about before I went to Ohio? <laughs> so, <laughs> I went back to myself. And, 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 and when I was a little kid, back to my time, my oldest sister had a thing about Christmas cookies. She was a fanatic on Christmas cookies. She always... Every darn Christmas, we had to have a Christmas cookie icing contest. And what she did is she made all kinds of Christmas cookies, and trees, and angels, and reindeers, and sleighs, and Santas, and all this Christmasy stuff, and a whole bunch of different kinds of icing, and lots and lots of stuff to put on the top. And then we'd have a Christmas cookie icing contest. And I never, I never liked icing Christmas cookies when I was a little kid back in Alliance, Ohio. And I didn't like icing Christmas cookies when I was a big shot doctor on the nut ward of the Mayo Clinic. I signed out, by God. I knew. I signed out, and went back to California where they treat me with more respect.
1: <laughs>
0: Told a neurologist about the, the, the nut ward I was accidentally on. He said, well, you see a psychiatrist here. Went to see a psychiatrist there. He talked to me for 45 minutes. Talked to Max for 10 minutes, and he locked me up in the local nut ward. <laughs> Uh How how you
1: they
0: uh, there they wanted to make ma- uh, make uh, uh wallets in, in, uh, <laughs> and, and ashtrays and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, in fact, uh, you couldn't get out of there until you made something useful. <laughs> I'll bet if they had a Senate investigation of that hospital network, I'll bet you'd find their people have been there for years, and they won't let them out until they make something by God, you know? <laughs> It was really a big deal. I mean, they not only thought you ought to do it, they tried to convince me that the the quality of my life would improve if I learned how to make leather belts. <laughs> I said, that's ridiculous. I said, I have, a, I have a whole wall full of licenses and certificates and diplomas and papers to prove that I've been educated way beyond my level of intelligence. <laughs> I don't see how making a leather belt would improve the quality of my life in any respect. <laughs> I didn't understand the philosophy, and besides, I didn't understand the instructions. <laughs> that, was, that wasn't my fault. That's all fault of that dumb occupational therapist, because I've always known that if you... You don't know a thing well enough so you can explain it to me so that I know it, and you don't know it as well as you're supposed to. <laughs> and that dummy had explained it three times to me, and I wasn't going to embarrass her by asking her a fourth time. <laughs> I sat there in my cell, commiserating with myself, having a consultation with me about the bad breaks and misdiagnoses and poor medical management that, nice guy like me ended up in a place like that. And while I was thinking that, this dumb psychiatrist, who couldn't see that my problems were strictly marital,
1: uh,
0: <laughs> walked up behind me and wanted to know, wanted to know if I'd be willing to talk to a man from Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought, God almighty, don't I have enough problems of my own without trying to help some drunk from AA? (laughs) But I could tell by the look in his face that he thought it was a good idea. I don't know if you know that or not, but happiness on a nut ward is having a happy psychiatrist. I was willing to go to any length to make him happy. <laughs> and I said, yes, and in no time at all, this clown comes galloping into the room, yelling at the top of his voice, My name is Frank and I'm an alcoholic. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I feel sorry for him. Uh, I feel embarrassed for him too meeting a perfect stranger, and the only thing he talked about it himself is that he's an alcoholic. He yelling real loud about us drunks and Alcoholics Anonymous and the big book and us alcoholics, and I thought, my God, man, why don't you lower your voice? <laughs> These people all think I'm a nut. Why don't we just leave it at that? <laughs> Another rule they
1: had at the nut ward was
0: you can't stay in bed. You can't stay in your room. You've got to come out. You, if you don't make bells, by God, you've got to sit out in, in the family room. You've got to sit in the family room. In the family room, it's a great big room. And one whole wall was glass, windows. And on the other side of that glass wall was the main walkway to the front door of the hospital. And I could just see me sitting there and having my patients walk by looking in the window. Oh, hello, Dr. Paul. How are you things in the network? You know. You know. A lousy way to spend your time. Uh, anyhow, I, uh, Frank was telling this story. God, he told an interminable story. went on and on and on. Don't remember a word he said. But I remember he said it loud, and he ended up, and he ended up saying, "Well, that's my story. I'm going to the meeting tonight. Would you like to go along?" And I said, "Hell no, I won't like it." <laughs> but I'll go because I know he'd go back and squeal that dumb psychiatrist. And uh, so we went off to the meeting, and uh, I don't know. I don't know where it was. I don't know. Where. I hear people give wonderful talks about their first meeting, the who led and who read, and the profound things people said. And I'm not, I don't mean I don't know any of that stuff. I don't know how many meetings we went to before I knew what meeting How was that? But I know that that meeting had a profound effect on the uh, psychiatrist. Uh.
1: (Laughter)
0: now he was spending a lot of time with me, a lot of time with me, an inordinate amount of time with me, and asking inappropriate questions like, what's this about a big book? What's this about meetings? What other kind of meetings do they have? What's this about steps? All these inter- personal questions about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought, my God, I've got me an alcoholic psychiatrist. <laughs> he's ashamed to go, so he's sending me.
1: Uh,
0: so I, I wonder how many meetings I have to go be- to before I can get him sober so I can go home. And I decided to go to all the meetings I could and uh, got Frank to take me every night. And we got to a lot of meetings. I got enough brownie points and I got discharged from the hospital. I had no intentions of going back to the meetings. Why would I? I wasn't an alcoholic. Uh, the problem was, though, that Max liked the meetings. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh, nothing. Uh, I was a big, uh, We couldn't do anything else but that. I said, let's go to the sh- show. And she oh, no, no, let's go to a meeting. Yeah. So we go to a dumb meeting. And, uh well, well of course, once I found out she liked the meetings, then I had something like it. She didn't shape up, by God, I was not going to go to AA anymore. <laughs> the, uh, what she ended up doing that was she couldn't drive the freeway. She could we drove 45 miles away to go to meetings so it wouldn't run into anybody I knew. And <laughs> a shame to be there. And, uh, she'd go off to meetings by herself. Have you ever tried that? Have you ever tried sitting at home? On a Saturday night, drinking all by herself. One alcoholic partner is off laughing it up at an AA meeting. Yeah. I found it very boring. I had to go back to meetings find out what they were laughing about. I found out the alcoholics laugh at anything. Laugh at nothing. And I uh, I, uh, I sat there listened to them. For seven months, and I, after seven months, I I went to one meeting too many, and I turned into a mild alcoholic.
1: <laughs>
0: one night, I found myself laughing with them, and I haven't had a drink since. And uh, to me, the laughter has been very therapeutic. I mean, it's a, very much a part of my program. In fact, I'm convinced that my my uh, higher power laughs. Every time he hears alcoholics or Alanons laugh, even if he doesn't understand the joke,
1: <laughs> he, just, he, just,
0: he just enjoys the laughter. It's very spiritual to me. And uh, so, anyhow, uh, when I first became an alcoholic, I was uh, hardly alcoholic at all. Just very,
1: <laughs>
0: very mildy, very mild alcoholic. Very mild. Uh, uh, more just kind of allergic to alcohol. But I wasn't a drunkard or a wino or a lush or a skidrow bum or any of that stuff. I was kind of allergic to alcohol. But I found out that I... Uh, I that's how what happened was after seven months of, of uh, indoctrination and instruction, I... Uh, became a convert to alcoholism. And uh, then I found out that uh, if I wanted to keep from drinking, I had to keep coming to meetings. And uh, so I was going to meetings to keep from drinking, because if I'm going to be an alcoholic, I want to be one of the sober ones. <laughs> and But uh, <laughs> well, that, that, you know, that was a very important part of that, as a matter of fact. Uh, Back there, they used to say, stick with the winners, stick with the winners. You want to be a winner, stick with the winners, stick with the winners. In fact, I remember uh, asking Chuck C., uh, who had been sober 150 or 60 years. (laughs) I said, I said, what's a winner? And I thought I expected him to come right out and tell me what a winner was. But he had to think about it. And he said, well, I guess you have to die sober. I thought, die, sober, big damn deal. Uh, I've never liked any accolades that I had to die to acquire. Uh, I had lifelong plans of being a saint. And I was going to be a saint, and I was indeed. In fact, I bought the big thick book, Lives of the Saints. So I was going to read through that and find out which one was going to be my role model. In fact, what happened was that I found out that the final requirement to being a saint was, according to them, you had to be dead for 300 years. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I thought, I thought, well, screw that. I don't. Know. As a matter of fact, talking about being a saint. You, you laughed as if it was uh, just frivolous, and it wasn't frivolous at all. I made myself a uh, humility belt Cause if you want to be a saint, you have to suffer. And so I took a leather belt about so wide, and I put thumbtacks through it with a point pointing in, and to wear it against your bare skin under your clothes. Yeah, and the and the tacks would penetrate the skin and the blood would run down your legs. and if there was enough of it you know it would even squish as you walked in the in your shoes and I I got a lot of humility
1: out of that belt I
0: I, ne- I never wore it because it hurt but I <laughs> Sincerity was my middle name. I, I, I was willing to go to almost any length. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, anyhow, I found out that... that, that Ellen, I thought, well, I, I want okay, I want to be a winner, but I want to be a successful member of AA. I was ashamed to be here, ashamed to have anybody know I was here, and to have you know who I was, and have anybody who knew what I was that I was coming here. And, I, and then I thought... And I felt like such a strong sense of failure. And yet here I am at the bottom bottom of the social barrel. I ought to at least succeed here, for God's sake. (laughs) And So I decided I was going to be a successful member of AA. And over the years, I I didn't say this to anybody else, just to myself. It was just a, a commitment I made to myself. And, and over the years I've kind of changed what I think a successful member of AA is. And, um, but bottom line is I don't know any successful members of AA who drink. And, uh, so I had to give up drinking. Uh, and I, uh, but and what I found out was that, um, what I observed was that if I wanted to stay sober I had to keep going to meetings. And I've seen people have beautiful sobriety on meetings, just meetings, They maybe a meeting every day, and have beautiful sobriety, right up to the day where they get drunk, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, I've got to work the steps, and so I got really into the steps in order to keep from drinking and being a successful member of AA, and then my observation was that I've seen people who stay sober by going to meetings and then working the steps. But they feel so good about having worked in the steps that over a period of time, they don't need to go to meetings anymore. And that's why I see a lot of them have slips after 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. And so it seems to me, what I've seen is I need both steps and the meetings. And so I've, uh, that, in fact, I do, I've gotten involved in a uh, pamphlet the found, came out of Texas, and made it into, the the notes came out of Texas, and I completed it put it into a pamphlet, and uh, give it away to people on how to study the first 164 pages of the book, and how to do the steps when you come to them. It's not a step study, it's a step do it. And (laughs) and I've printed up, so far, 22,000 of those and uh, put them out like shareware in a computer thing. <laughs> you get them, take them for free, and then if you want to pay for it or want to donate, fine, you keep it going. Anyhow, well, the point was, I didn't mean to get into all that. The point is that as a result of that, I have, I've, I've redone, I have redone the steps, all of them to the best of my ability, on an average of every five years, for a number of years now. And every time I've done that, I've moved to a new plateau in my sobriety. And, uh, I know there are people who feel you shouldn't do that. You don't have to do the steps over. You just do step ten from then on or whatever. And there are other people who do it every year. But I don't, I'm not advising, I'm not sharing an opinion. I'm sharing my experience. I'm telling you what I've done has worked for me. And I'm going to keep on doing it. Because that's so, uh, uh, that's the way it works for me. I, um uh, I thoroughly enjoy. I, 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 I started to say, I thoroughly really enjoy being an alcoholic. I, I, I do, because I, I enjoy the sobriety. I enjoy this way of life. I enjoy AA. I enjoy being part of this. And I uh, I know, I've heard people say they like having the program, but they don't like being alcoholic. And my reaction is, well, what damn good would the program be if you weren't an alcoholic? <laughs> I don't see any non alcoholics knocking the doors down and say, Would you listen to my fifth step? you know. But, you, know but you have to have the alcoholism and the thing. And I think I'm pretty sure I'd rather be an alcoholic than be a non alcoholic married to one, I think. But uh I don't I don't want to experiment with that at all. I just, so I, I like being an alcoholic and uh, if that bothers you to hear me say that, uh, that's too damn bad. Uh,
1: <laughs>
0: you can talk to your uh, sponsor about it.
1: <laughs> if your
0: sponsor doesn't understand, get a new sponsor. And, uh,
1: <laughs>
0: and if you don't have a sponsor, yeah, you better get one. I, uh, I uh, cause every, every one of my good idea. Every one of my ideas, <clears throat> I need a second opinion on, especially my really good ideas.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I have the same sponsor that I've had from the beginning. I was talking to a friend of mine. He had been sober a few months longer than I was. I said to him, uh, I get annoyed at what the group was saying to me. They were making smart remarks. About me not having a sponsor. And I was telling him about it. And he. uh, On the spur of the moment. I said to him. I said. Why don't you be my sponsor? He said. Well. I'll be your sponsor. If you'll be my sponsor. (laughs) I said. Well. I don't know if they allow that. (laughs) I said. It sounds kind of incestuous to me. (laughs) 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 I remember I was meeting with a group of the guys I sponsored in the house the other day and they were, I was telling them about Bill talking about how with his people he sponsors, he tells them who, his sponsorship goes back all the way back to God I guess, I don't remember. <laughs> uh, something like, and so I tried to do that with my group and I said, well, my sponsor is Jack and Jack's sponsor is me. Yeah, and so we got nowhere on that deal. <laughs> <you know. laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: but I, uh, the, uh, oh, oh, we're going to talk about sponsorship or something like that. So I, I had a few words of wisdom there, but I was going to waste them on you. I'll wait and save them for the uh, workshop. Uh, There's so few, I have to, I can't spread them around too much. Uh, but anyhow, I, I enjoy living this program. I, uh, but I, even my, my routines for the thing, uh, I've gotten in the morning, when I awaken in the morning, before I'm really awake, I like to uh, say the serenity prayer, the third step prayer, and the uh, seven step prayer. And then uh, for bra- breakfast, Max and I say those three prayers and read some stuff and have some meditation. Throughout the day, if I'm going to do something, I'll say, "God, God, I offer myself and this situation to you to do with as you wish. Relieve me of the bondage of self. I used to say that for all time and put in that relieve me of the bondage of self thing without ever paying any attention to what that bondage of self meant. And uh, bondage means uh, actually slavery and being enslaved by obsession with self. I got to thinking about that and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that actually I am I am by far the most interesting person I know.
1: <laughs> I do, I,
0: I really do. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about me and what I've done and what I haven't done and what I wish I'd have done and what I wish I hadn't done and what I hope I do and what I hope I don't do. And I hope I do it with and to and whatever. Just... <laughs> you guys are interesting, but you're nothing compared to me. I just...
1: <laughs>
0: like the guy says, I'm not. I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. You know. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, somebody asked me, do you you still get nervous when you get up to talk? And I said, well, I don't really call it nervousness. I like to call it anticipatory anxiety.
1: (laughs) And
0: and I say to God, God, I offer myself in this situation to you to do with as you want. My thought is that I would like it to be really terrific. But if this is the time when you want me to make a complete ass of myself... (laughs) At least one of us will have a good time. Yeah. Uh, how do you open with saying something about my story in the, in the book? I don't... I always uh, feel self-conscious about that and I never bring it up as a topic. And yet, um, it's your book. And, uh, I think you have, uh, well anyhow, without a lot of preliminary thing, let me tell you how it got in, how the story got in the book. Because a lot of people uh, think that I put it in this grapevine, and then later on they put it in the big book, and it wasn't like that at all. I had written some articles for the grapevine. And the most recent one was "No Pills to Alcoholics," was why doctors shouldn't prescribe pills, tranquilizers, and pep pills, and so on to to alcoholics. So the editor of the Grapevine knew my writing, and she also happened to be Paula Carpenter was her name. She's since passed on. She also happened to be the chairperson of the committee to examine stories for the big book. And when you write an article for the big uh, for the Grapevine, they always write you a real nice letter. and then they tell you whether they're going to use it or not. And she wrote back and said they liked the article and they were going to use it. And then she added at the bottom a paragraph saying, had I perchance ever had a problem, a dual problem, meaning a problem with drugs as well as alcohol, and if so, had uh, would I consider writing it up and sending it in for submission to see if they wanted to use it in the next edition of the big book? And I read that and thought, now that is about, the dumbest idea I have ever heard. Uh, I would never want to do that. I mean, it was just I would not do that. Did't even answer her letter, and so some months later, she called from New York and wondered if I had written it, and uh I said no, I lied. I said I hadn't had time, and so she said she would extend the time that they would have it to use it. I still wasn't going to write it, but the girl in the office, other than Max, who was a medical transcriptionist on the program, she thought it would be nice to have typed the problem, the story. It might appear in the book. She said, why don't you write it? I'll type it. We'll send it in. I wrote it. She typed it, and we sent it in. Got into New York, and they decided it was too late to get it in the have a third edition. They had another printing instead, and instead they put it in the grapevine. And they put it in the grapevine with the original title that I had sent in, uh, uh which was Bronze Moccasins. And, uh, the, uh, um, and they didn't change the story. People seem to think that pe- they edit your story if you sent it in. They didn't. The only thing they edited it was they took out, a—I thought it was a perfectly good word, but they took it out, uh, the word al Uh, uh <laughs> I thought it was time their disease had a name too by God (laughs) took that out and and they put it in uh, in the grapevine under bronze And the reason I mentioned all that was when it finally came out well another thing they do is if you send an article into the uh, grapevine and they print it they use it. They always send you a uh, and that issue a month ahead of time. Even if you got a subscription, you get a copy to see what your story is going to look like. You get it a month ahead of time. They didn't do that with a book. They, when they put it in the book, they changed the title to what it is now. And one day, the central office called the office and said, to Max, does Doctor know that his story is in the big book?" And She said, no, we didn't know it. And I already had a book, and I had to go out and buy another one. Uh, (laughs) And there it was, and they had changed the title. And my, my guess is, it's only a guess, that they used that title in order to show that alcoholics can be addicts, and they can have additional problems that alcoholics have a constitutional right to have as many problems as they want. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I, mean, what they, I think what they wanted, it's just a guess, but I think what they wanted to show was that it's, it's just because you're something else doesn't make you not an alcoholic if you are an alcoholic, any more than being something else doesn't make you an alcoholic if you're not an alcoholic. That was my guess. And I think they... Accomplished what they were after, but overshot the mark. And now there's some mix-up about plenty. That's how it got in the book. And I sure guess I beat that story then. <laughs> 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 Let me finish with one, a thing I find fascinating. Uh, I find much about this whole, everything about this program fascinating. But, uh, I was thinking if my life were Put on a graph, made a chart. We were made of it. What would it look like? And I've come to the conclusion that it would be a giant V. You know, like the, the Jelinek chart. That my life began way, way over there. Way, way way over there. Uh, (laughs) 70, uh, 78 years ago. Uh, Which brings up the fact that Max and I, uh the end of this year, we will have been married 58 years.
1: Yeah.
0: That's one more, one more thing. One more thing that you are nowhere near as impressed as I am. <laughs> <laughs> the only one impressed more than I am is Max. And uh, I began like way over there. And from where it began until July 31st, 1967, it was on a downhill course. Now, it was not a straight line down. It was up and down. Just enough ups to keep me confused. <laughs> and each time it went down, it went downer than before. And it finally ended up in the nut ward of the hospital. was on the staff of. That wasn't bad enough. So I had to go to AA. <laughs> I went to AA for seven months and on July 31st, 1967 I accepted the fact that I, of all people, was a mild... i had apparently gotten somebody else's disease by mistake but I was a mild alcoholic. And from that moment on my life's been getting better and better. Better and better. And... And, and today it's better than it's ever been. Better than it's ever been. And I'm convinced that the only thing that determines how high that can go is how long I keep doing the things I'm doing that's keeping it on an uphill curve. It's just... I, I, there's no... I don't there's, The only limit is how high it can go is how long I can keep doing what I'm doing. I, and I can't get it all. I know I can't get it all. I want, I want all... I, I, I want as much of this program as I can get. I can't get it all, but I want as much as I can get. I don't think anybody I know sure, nobody can live long enough to get everything this program has to offer. But I want as much as I can get. And and the the thing is that even when it, and it's not a straight line up. It's up and down, up and down. But when it goes down there are things I can do to get it to go up. Yeah, go to meetings, start another meeting. I'd love to start meetings. Start half a dozen, fifteen, I don't know whenever you get bored or start a new meeting uh, read the book work with, another sponsor, work with the newcomers call a sponsor all that stuff that works or sit still and wait it's going to get better it's like uh, Winnie E. used to say the Alnon speaker she used the only Bible quote she ever used she says and the Bible says and it came to pass the Bible does not say and it came to stay you know? <laughs> It's going to get better. But the thing that fascinates me is the thing that turned the course of my life from getting progressively worse to getting progressively better. One one little act of acceptance, accepting one reality of my life changed the course of my life. Uh, and, you know, and that's such a simple thing. And is. Bright and good looking as I am. Why why did it take me so long to find that out? And the only thing I can figure out is that I couldn't accept the fact that I was an alcoholic because I didn't approve. I didn't approve of me being an alcoholic. I thought approval, I thought acceptance meant approval. And it does. Out here, if you go and look at a car and you don't approve of it, well, don't buy it. Anything, you guy. If you buy it, don't don't buy it if you don't approve of it. If you get it home, find out it isn't what you thought it was, take it back. And don't be a wimp. If you don't approve of it, don't accept it. But in the world of God's world and the world we live in, uh, that that doesn't really matter. Doesn't really matter. And. And the point, the thing that really, I really see from this perspective is that in my life, the things that I refuse to accept, the realities that I refuse to accept, continue to get progressively worse and worse and worse until I finally think, I don't know the hell with it. And I accept it, and it gets better. As long as I'm working on it, I'm putting energy into the problem, making it worse, when I accept it and say, well, whatever it's supposed to be, let it go. And then it starts getting better. And, I, you know, that's I just realized how easy that was to say that to you. Why is it so damned hard to live it? You know, uh, it's just, but it, it seems to me that's uh, the basis of the whole thing. <coughs> acceptance, an attitude of acceptance, an attitude of gratitude. Like a guy in our area says, grateful people are happy people. And those who ain't, ain't.
1: <laughs>
0: so, I'm very grateful and really delighted to be here. It's been a wonderful uh, roundup so far. And uh, I'm just, uh, well, of course, Max is talking tomorrow. I don't know about that. Uh, she's a nice gal, but she sure has an odd memory.
1: Uh <laughs>
0: Max, stand. Max, stand up. We, stand up.. We okay. Thank you all very much. Love you.